Stranger Rangers. This is Fatina. This is Bree. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. We're going to get straight to it. Yeah, let's get into this. So, as Kara told you, um, <laughs> this is an international case. Cool. We are going to Australia. Australia. Yes. I have Does that been... sound like an Australian accent? Yes. I think so. I think so. (laughs) I have been obsessed with Australian reality TV lately. Nice. I had been caught up on Survivor, Big Brother, uh, The Mole, like all these shows Uh that are American. um, And started looking for other shows, found the Australian versions. And let me tell you, if you're a reality TV junkie, like competition shows like Uh I am... Oh my God, go watch the Australian version. They are 1,000 times better. They're not playing games like these American ones. Right. Oh my goodness. And so much more fun to listen to. Yes. I love Australian accents. And Tyson loves to try to do an Australian accent. And it is probably one of the highlights of my life listening to him trying to <laughs> trying do it. to it's do it. hilarious <laughs> i'm terrible at access same and i i know one thing that i know i can nail an australian accent and that's 13 oh, i thought you were gonna say crikey <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> i love when they say like 15 or 13 and i'm uh-huh. like oh it's Ooh. just a softer 13 <laughs> it's just <laughs> Um, and I'm what you know we're watching TV and every time they say no, they they add like that R to it. So it's like no, no. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So shout out to all of our Australian listeners. I yes. know we have a couple down there. So our friends down under. Yes. So today when I was well when I was started researching for today's case, I was like, you know what? I want to do something that's a not American because I mean I know that's a lot of what we cover, and that's because we're crazy and we have yes. a lot of cases. True. <laughs> Uh, but there's, of course, you know, all these international cases that have garnished so much or garnered so much attention. Mm-hmm. And as I started looking for one, I, of course, wanted to do something that was not newer, but, you know, within our lifetime and, and whatnot. Sure. And this is a little bit older case. Okay. And because it's a little bit older, a lot of things happen the way they did because of when it happened that it'll only make sense because of when it happened. Gotcha. So without further ado, so that little R just gets getting thrown in <laughs> yeah, there. My did. bad. Getting in the mood. <laughs> without further Wow. <laughs> I just can't even speak. I love it. Further. <laughs> I am going to be telling you about the kidnapping case of Graham Thorne. Ooh, kidnapping. Yes. Cool. So Not this, cool. Not cool. <laughs> but we haven't talked about a kidnapping case no. in a while. And so his name is spelled G-R-A-E-M-E. Oh, and it's pronounced Graham well, <laughs> or how I think Americanized version, it's going to sound like Graham. Okay. And if you're in Australia um, or pronouncing it correctly for that, for that matter. Sure. It's, I think it's more pronounced Graham, Graham, 
Mm. It's, yeah, because I'm throwing the... A little slide on the vowels. Yeah, gotcha. I'm throwing that H in there because uh-huh. I'm used to Graham, like Graham Cracker. Right. Um, but it's Graham. Okay. So... Gotcha. If I mispronounce it, I apologize. It's not intentional. I've been practicing trying to say it, and I've been listening to his name be said over and over, but it's still likely to happen where I mispronounce his name. Sure. So this goes down to... This case takes place in Bondi, uh, mm-hmm. which also Bondi Beach, the show, amazing. I think I've seen Bondi Beach. <laughs> so good. Yeah. So good. Um, so that's in Sydney, Australia. Yes. So a little bit of history as far as the infamous landmark that is the Opera House in, in Sydney, mm-hmm. right? So the Opera House, when they first started the construction for it and the plans for it, they had estimated initially for it to be a four-year-long project and for it to take no more than $7 million or Australian dollars. Okay. Now, by the end of it all, by the time it actually finished construction and all the monies had been paid, Mm -hmm. it actually cost over a hundred million dollars. I believe it. Pounds, and it took over 14 years to build. Wow. So whoever did the initial estimate on this completely missed the mark. It completely. Both time and money wise. And so the, the construction for it began in 1959. And so they quickly realized that they had under budgeted how much they were going to need to build this ginormous place yeah i mean it's a staple it's a oh yeah landmark when you think of australia a hundred percent so what they did to raise funds for the opera house for the building of it mm-hmm. was they held a lottery oh okay right yeah which is a kind of a cool way to raise funds for something for sure um and they sold tickets at three pounds a ticket. Mm-hmm. So this was back in 1960 when they began, or 1959 when they began selling these lottery tickets. Okay. The prizes for the drawings would range anywhere from five pounds. So you could just get your money back kind sure. of thing. A um, hundred pounds, a thousand pounds, and the grand prize being a hundred thousand pounds. Wow. Yeah, that's worth it. So back in 1960, Equivalent to today's money, that would be give or take 2.8 to 3 million. I would take that. So that could be a life changer for anyone. Absolutely. That won that prize. For sure. So back in 1960, in early 1960, people would line up, make long lines to try and get these tickets. Um, They were three pounds at the time. So that was equivalent to give or take about 60 bucks now. Okay. So if you're an avid you know, lottery scratcher or lottery buyer, 60 bucks for almost 3 million. Why not take a chance? Not pocket change, but if you like playing the game, yeah, a decent investment. So just to put it into perspective, the three pounds at the time was about a quarter of a week's worth of salary. Okay. So someone's salary, the median average was about 17 pounds a week. Gotcha. So it was, like you said, a nice chunk of change Mm -hmm. if you wanted to throw your hat in this ring. Right. So all of that to say that the Thorne family was one of those families that wanted to take their chances and see if they can win the lottery. Literally. Yeah. (laughs) So we have the dad. His name is Basil. 
I love, love that. It. Oh my God, I'm obsessed. <laughs> I know. And that's B A Z Y L. And the mom is Frida. Together they have three children. They have an older daughter, and I could not get her age and at this point in 1960. All I know is that she was older. Okay. She was born with some kind of I don't know if it was a developmental challenge mm. or some kind of uh, medical. She needed a constant medical attention. Okay. From what I've gathered is that back in, you know, five, six decades ago in Australia, when a child was special needs like this, they would institutionalize them. Oh, okay. So they would have that round-the-clock care that they would need. Sure. They had Graham, which was eight years old mm-hmm. in 1960. And they had a three-year-old daughter named Belinda. So, Belinda? Yes. Okay. I know. So family of five. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, with one kid living outside the home. Mm-hmm. This was your run-of-the-mill, just middle-class family. Uh, dad was uh, a traveling salesman. He worked alongside his father. And Frida was a stay-at-home mom. Okay. Because she had an eight-year-old and a three-year-old to look after. Yeah. That was a full-time job. Yes. <laughs> and Basil... Uh, he traveled a lot. He's a traveling salesman. Yeah. <laughs> so that would take him out of the home for three, four days at a time while yeah. he was traveling and selling whatever it is that he was selling. I couldn't find definitively what it is that he was selling. But um, unfortunately, they didn't own a home. They were renting at this time, which okay. is very common. Yeah. You know, middle class family at this point, they were renting a home. And that was in Bondi. Okay. Okay. And... They went and bought a ticket, and on June 1st, 1960, while Basil was out on one of his work trips, Mm -hmm. he had won the lottery. Oh. The lottery called him, tracked him down by his work of where he would be at, and they phoned him, because there's no cell phones at this time. Right. They phoned him where he was at his place of work. And let him know that he had actually won the $100,000 prize. What a phone call. He was lost for words. Yeah. It is reported that some of his co-workers that were there with him had to like take over the phone call for him. Sure. (laughs) Because he was in shock that he had just won this amount of money. I would probably pass out if someone called me and told me I just won $3 million. Yes. Still don't call an ambulance for me, but I'll be fine. Yeah. I don't (laughs) want want to pay that fee. I want to keep that money in my pocket. So with this announcement or with this news to him and his family that they had just won the lottery, the newspaper printed an article for front page news Yeah, that this was the winner. It was Basil Thorne that had won the, the lottery ticket. And this is what's odd. And this is kind of the, the small snowball that began this whole thing. Okay. Back in 1960... There were no laws. There was no rules. I don't think that anyone ever thought of it. They put his picture, picture of his kids, his family, mm-hmm. and his address on the newspaper. I was like, I kind of, as soon as he said it was yep. printed front page news, I was like, I kind of have a feeling of where this story is going to go. And at that time, the newspaper saw that as a form of transparency, saying, look, we're not keeping all the money. There is a winner. Right. He's one of yous, <laughs> you know. He's legit. This is where he lives. Exactly. Just your average Joe. Exactly. So they wanted it to be not only a thing of transparency, but also something that would draw in people to continue buying 
lottery tickets. For sure. Because they did these periodically Mm -hmm. to keep raising money because obviously they had underestimated. Yeah, exactly. So they did that because they're like, hey, look, this middle class person just came into all this money with all, you know, because of the lottery. So that could be you too. Mm -hmm. That was their intent behind it. Of course, it was no malicious intent behind putting him at front page news that he had won this amount of money. Right. It's reported that both Basil, uh, Basil, sorry, Basil, <laughs> um, and his wife Frida at the time were not going to go and buy themselves all these lavish things. Right. They were very conservative with their financials. And even though they asked Basil what his intentions were, was he going to retire mm-hmm. with this amount of money? He said no. He actually worked with his dad, so him leaving what he was doing would leave his dad alone to work. So not only that, but he also was planning on just putting away some of the money because he knew that his daughter, his older daughter, was going to need continuous care for the rest of her life. For sure. And before they had won the money, they were already, you know, penny pinching Mm -hmm. to try and get Graham the best education that he could get. Okay. So he was going to a very elite school called Scott's. So even though he had come to all this money, he wasn't planning on, like I said, just spending it away. And, you know, he yeah. tried to, he was going to scroll some away. He was being modest with it. Very, smart very with his modest. money. Yeah. They did not get the money right away. Okay. So I think with any large prize, there's going to be, you know, clerical stuff that needs to happen and office stuff and clear the checks and whatnot. So although they got the call on June 1st that they were the winners, they expected about a month delay before they would actually get the money, Mm -hmm. before they got the check. So Basil continued working. Uh There's nothing, no change in routine for anyone Um, Frida kept getting Graham ready for school every day. And then also when he went to school, her and little baby Belinda would go and run their errands, go grocery shopping, etc. Right. Between the time that they were announced as the winners and when they were expecting their check, they at the time, the Thorns, did not have a landline in their house. Oh, okay. Okay. So because they knew... um, It's kind of odd. It is a little odd, but it's 1960 at this time as well. And I don't understand the concept behind it, but this is how it's explained in multiple different resources that they had applied for a phone line back in March. They were approved for one or assigned a number in May. Mm -hmm. And in May, we're told that they would have their line installed by the beginning of July. Gosh, that's such a long time. Such a long time. I know. We want such immediate satisfaction now that we're like, if you go to the phone store, you better walk out of there with a phone. They were much more patient (laughs) in the 60s. So they didn't have a landline at this time, at least between the time of June and when this all took place. Right. From when they were winnings were announced. So instead of getting phone calls from newspapers or any family members that were aware of their winnings, they were actually getting knocks on the door. Okay. Excuse me. Like telegrams? Probably. Yeah. They were getting letters as well from long lost relatives asking Uh for money. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Making a case. Yeah. And, you know, 
they kind of got used to it. Yeah. Because you come into that much, not much money. People are going to come out of the woodwork yeah, for there's that. There's like, there's my third cousin, Joe. Yes. Yeah. So, and you know, there was people, um, like charities coming forward too mm-hmm. and making their case as to why they should make a donation to their organization right. and whatnot. So all that to say that Frida and Basil had gotten very used to people knocking on their doors, whether they're reporters or someone, it sounds rude to say, but begging for money. Sure. Because that's what they were doing. They were asking for some kind of money. I bet that got old fast. Yeah. So on June 14th, they did get a knock on the door that was, that kind of stood out from the rest. They got a knock on the door from someone that was presenting um, themselves to be a private inquirer is what mm-hmm. they would call him in Australia, but a private investigator is what we would call him here in the U.S. Oh, okay. So a private eye. He knocked on the door and both Basil and Frida were, were there. It was one of the rare nights that he was there for dinner. Uh-huh. And they both answered the door and he started asking questions about a prior tenant. Again, they were renting where they were living. Right. So they... The private investigator was asking about a Mr. Borger. Mm. So he asked, you know, do you know of him? Do you know, you know, where he lives now, etc. And at this point, which is really odd, and this is why it stuck out. He asked them to verify the phone number for the house. He gave them mm. the phone number that was not yet publicly available. So not like in a phone book. Mm-hmm. And she said, yes, that is our number, but it's not even connected yet. Weird. So she asked, how did you get that? Yeah. And he said, well, I have my ways. She asked what the overall inquiry was about. And she said, and he was, and he told her or them that it was about a marital issue. So someone that was, you know, putting a private eye on their ex-husband, et cetera, something like that. Well, she said, you know what? We don't know Mr. Borger. We've only lived here for a short amount of time. Uh So you probably have better luck going upstairs and checking with the upstairs neighbor tenant. Right. Yeah. So he went upstairs into what it seems like now keep up the ruse of him being a private investigator and keeping his ducks in a row uh-huh. to the upstairs neighbor. He brought up the name that Frida had brought up downstairs saying, Oh, I know this guy to be the last tenant. Mm. So he covered his tracks that way. Gotcha. Of course they didn't think about this interaction till sometime later. Right. But now we know that that interaction stuck out as usual on Friday, July 7th, 1960, Basil was not home. He was away on business. Mm -hmm. And Frida got up, got Graham ready for school and Belinda ready. Now, every day for school, Frida had a friend named Phyllis who would drive by and pick up Graham from a designated spot along with her two boys that went to the same school and pick him up to take him to school. Okay. Now, when Graham walked out of the house, he usually went over to a small store to buy some chips and candy and yeah. whatnot, and then would go to the meetup spot that was close by. And he's about eight years old at this he's time. He's eight years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he's about that age where he can yeah. walk a block down from the house and get, you know, picked up from a friend. Totally. It's wild, like, today to think about letting an eight... I mean, I'm sure I was allowed to go and walk to the corner store when I was eight, 
But the thought of me letting an eight-year-old walk to the corner store nowadays just, like, is almost, like, unthinkable. It's weird because we don't walk to places like we used to. True. We don't walk, you know, the places are not as convenient as they used to be. Yeah. And, you know, now looking back, and I've been to my neighborhood where I was, where I grew up, and it's funny because to me, it was this big deal when my mom let me walk home from school and to school by myself when I was seven. Right. And now I realize that she could see my school from the front of the oh, house. that's funny. Yeah. And see, like, I grew up in, like, a pretty small town. And so not as intimidated. Like, going back, you know, you see kids walking around everywhere. But I guess I just think about living in Portland. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Nothing is, like, walking distance anymore. Not really. No. And then, you know, we don't have the safest sidewalks and, you know. Well, there's just so much traffic. There's so and, many things. Yeah. So, but back, you know, it. Times have changed even in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine, you know, 50s, 60s. Yeah. Kids were allowed to, that was, that I don't was know, nothing. buy fireworks. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Just like <laughs> yeah. not things they're allowed to now. Exactly. But yeah, you know, things change. But for Graham, it was walking down two different streets, taking two turns. He would be at the meetup spot every morning. Okay. He went to a very prestigious school, so they had a uniform. Um, and he had a little bookcase that I think now would be better described as a briefcase, mm-hmm. but that was his back, not backpack. <laughs> that was his bookcase. Yeah. Um, it had his name engraved in it in gold, a little corner. It had G Thorn. I know. Oh my gosh. Super adorable. So on July 7th, um, mom kissed him goodbye as always every morning, just routine. I mean, this is a Friday, so he had done it four other days this week. Right. And he usually, they usually met up at the meetup spot around 8.15. So a quarter past eight every morning. Mm -hmm. The mom, Phyllis, the mom's friend, Phyllis, pulled up to their meeting spot and he's not there, but... Not that this doesn't happen, but it's not unusual. Like, hey, maybe he's running a little bit late. Sure. She had one of her two kids jump out and go check at that corner store to see if he, you know, was was in line or something to pay. And no, he wasn't there. So because it was just two turns to get into the neighborhood to get into Graham's home, she drove up to the home and Mm -hmm. advised Frida, hey, where's Graham? Right. She's like. And all hell hell broke loose at that point. Because the mom said, I just saw him, you know, 10, 15 minutes ago. And at that point, the mom went over to the school to see if somehow he had gotten a ride with someone else or if there's some kind of confusion. If, you know, she's checking it all. Right. right? So she goes to the school. Absolutely. No gram. Nothing. She gets back home around 930. So not a lot of time has passed. Sure. And at this point, because it's July 7th, so about a month has gone past from the last time that private investigator was there. Their phone was installed at this time. Right. She picks up and calls the police. Yeah. So immediately they have a detective come over to the house. Now, when he's there, the mom gets a call from what we know now is the kidnapper. Mm. The mom picks up, Frida picks up. And she is not all there right now. Yeah. She's freaked she's, out. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So she hands the phone to the detective. Now, for the kidnapper, he might have thought that was Mr. Thorne. Because it's just another man on the phone. He didn't pick up the call and say, hi, this is detective so-and-so. Sure. He just picked up the phone and it, because it was a male voice, he probably, the kidnapper probably thought that was Mr. Thorne. Right. So at that point, he asked for $25,000 in ransom. Mm-hmm. He said that he would call back by 5 p.m. to give further instructions and that if they didn't do that or gave a penny less, that he would feed the boy to the sharks. Oh, my gosh. Now, I know we jokingly mentioned Bondi Beach in the show <laughs> right. earlier. But in Bondi, shark attacks are real. Oh, a hundred. I, I'm yes. obsessed with shark yes. every year. And I always end up watching it. It ironically airs like... The week before we go on vacation in Hawaii, <laughs> yeah. but I can't not watch it. And yes, Australia has so many sharks. Yeah. Specifically there. Yes. And it's one of those beaches that is also very visited. So they even have shark nets around some of the most populated areas so to prevent oh, wow. the sharks coming in. So like the, the scare of being fed to the sharks is a, an actual threat. Right. It's not just like a, a flippant tra- threat of this is what I'm going to do to your kid. Right. Like, it's exactly. an actual thing. Yeah. Um, now, the detective did notice, although they did speak very briefly, that whoever was on the phone had a very heavy European accent. Mm. And if you're in Australia, it's just like, you know, Americans to Australian, vice versa, sure. European, you're going to notice a difference. Um, so he noticed those things about the call. So he said he would call around 5 p.m. with further instructions. What's happening now is that this is the very first documented kidnapping for ransom case in all of australia wow this is why it's so monumental totally because this could have caught the police completely off guard right and they've could have completely shit the bed on this yeah but as i'll tell you what they did i think they took everything in stride and just went with it and if they felt like Hey, could we do this? They did. Sure. They're, they'd left no, no stone unturned on awesome. this case. So the dad flew in that very same night from his job. He, again, no cell phones at this time. Right. He had no idea what was happening. Oh, my gosh. As he flew into the airport, he heard an announcement on the loudspeaker to go to a specific office in the airport, to the security office. They paged him specifically. Yes. Gotcha. So... In that office, they let him know that it was a police matter and what was happening and what they knew up until that point. Mm -hmm. And when he got home, that's when he found out that there was actually a demand for ransom made as well. Mm -hmm. Dad was devastated. At this point, mom is completely fucking devastated. At 9 or at 8 p.m., the family doctor had to come over and sedate Frida. That's how fucking shaken she was. I'm Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I cannot even imagine. Yes. Um, by the time, even though dad was home, there was a detective now posted up in the house because they weren't going to just go back and go about their police business like, oh, we'll just make a report. Right. 
Um, so at 9.47 p.m. that same night, July 7th, they got a second phone call because five o'clock came and went and there was no second phone call from the mm. kidnapper at that time, which would kind of make your heart sink because absolutely call me tell me how much money you want i will give you all of it you're already right? freaking out now there's this level of unknown because yeah they didn't call they didn't call so they got a phone call though at 9 47 and the detective that was there this was a second detective mm-hmm. picked up the phone as if they were mr thorne okay which is good plan Smart. good plan his intention behind this was to elongate the conversation as much as possible because they were going to try and trace it. The caller did say that he wanted the money in two different bags. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, the detective did tell him to slow down a little bit because he was going to write down everything. Uh-huh. And I don't, we don't know if that's what tipped off the kidnapper mm. to potentially the call being traced or just thought that something was off so he hung up the call so the call could not be traced at that point right it's kind of impressive that back in the 60s we already had that technology for tracing phone calls i mean now you know who's calling you before you pick up exactly (laughs) yeah but you know at least they had that technology there that they could try and trace something um at that point by 3 a.m so the morning of the 8th by 3 a.m., mm-hmm. they had already set up a tip line. They were on it. Yeah, they, they were. They honestly were. Yeah. And they had already received more than 400 tips. Wow. By 3 o'clock in the morning. Crazy. That's because they went full, like, they they went to the media right away. Yeah, they pulled out all the stops. So whoever has this kid right now realizes, oh, shit, it's not a simple... <laughs> I'm going to take him, give him money. Yeah. We'll be done exchange. He's realized it blew up. Yeah. He realized now that the parents called the cops and that the media is involved. Right. And they all know they're looking for a child, Mm -hmm. an eight year old kid. Yeah. I can imagine the kidnapper probably shitting their pants now. Yeah. They're like, uh, what did I just do? Which makes me think of modern day and age now when we see things in movies or we or even real life kidnappings, one of the first things that a kidnapper would say are, you know, I have your loved one. Don't call the police. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it makes me it makes me wonder, is it because of this one? Because of this case? I'm, Maybe. I'm I mean, sure just in general, it's but built on that over time for sure. Yeah. So, uh, by Friday the 8th, the very next day, the Bondi PD was stationed as the headquarters. Mm-hmm. All police that was on leave on any kind of PTO, that was denied, and they wanted them on, and they <sighs> wanted them searching. Oh, you're not going anywhere. They, they didn't let anyone have yeah. any leave until further notice. All the news stations were on alert, and they were running this on their cycles every time that they were on the news. And by the middle of the day, the dad had a conference pleading with the media mm-hmm. or with whoever's watching on the on the news. And he made one of the most heartfelt pleas I have ever heard. He is broken down and it's probably sexist of me to say, but there's something about a man just genuinely crying, just sobbing that I'm like, oh, this guy. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's just because it's something you're not used to. But For sure. 
he is pleading that whoever has his kid, if they're a father, please let him have his kid back. Absolutely. I'll give you all the money. Just let me have my yes. kid back. Something interesting, and this is just the fun fact that I found in here, that the newspapers or the police asked the newspapers to print the plea from the father mm. on the newspapers in three different languages, which were German, Italian, and Greek, which were besides English, the three most popular languages in Australia at that yeah, time. that's smart. And they set up checkpoints at entry roads in and out, airports, train stations, any um, boats, entries or anything like that. And they were checking people coming in and out. Wow. Um, they had three different phone lines set up by this time. And this is all happening very, very yeah, quickly afterwards. Sure. Um, and they were following up on even what would be dead end leads. Um, I mean, it was at this point, even like scout leaders were taking their troops out like kids. So kids were out searching oh my gosh. for anything. Wow. So there was one tip that came in. Um, and had some validity to it because I think anyone who's sorting through tips, if there's more than one tip that comes in that's very similar, mm -hmm. it's going to start building, right? Yes. So there was one tip that uh, about 32 kilometers northwest of their home at a gas station, there were two men and one woman who seemed to be of Italian descent. Mm -hmm. um, and they also said they had like olive skin. Okay. That were that got a fill up at the gas station. There was a kid with them that kind of matched uh, Graham's description, and they also bought a thirteen gallon drum, which oh. is odd. Yeah, that is odd. And the police did track down that vehicle, and there was a high speed chase, and unfortunately they did they did lose them in traffic. Oh. They did run the plate that was on there uh -huh. while they were trying to catch them. And the plate did not belong to that car. Gotcha. So that's oh, one man. thing. That happened July 7th, too. Sorry, there's a little okay. bit there. But it all happens so fast. Sure. On July 8th, so the very next day, that Friday, uh, sorry, on that Friday, uh -huh. um, Joseph Henry Bell, who was a 75-year-old man, he was collecting cans or walking around in high bush looking for cans. He was in the... He was north of Sydney Harbor at this time. He was walking through all the dense bushes. He found the bookcase. Oh, his little, like, school book bag? Yes. Gotcha. He found the bookcase. He was freaked out because there was literally no one in Australia at this point that didn't know this kid was missing. Right. And didn't know his name. For sure. So he found the bookcase, and he got so freaked out that he put it, he put it away where he had found it. He, like, shoved it out of the view mm -hmm. and when his son got home at 6 p.m he told his son like hey i mean this is me yeah. <laughs> there's no verbatim about what he said but he's like i found this bookcase and i think it's from the kid that's missing uh -huh. so his kid sorry his son-in-law swarmed the place yeah, they confirmed right. it was his bookcase it was empty and yeah. it did have his name in in engraved on it mm -hmm. with the gold g thorn on it right they immediately mm -hmm. put a five kilometer perimeter right. around where the bookcase was found mm -hmm. 
And they did shoulder to shoulder comb through the yeah. entire area. Yeah. There was so many people yeah. looking through yeah. these bushes. I bet. There was no fung- fin- no fingerprints. Sorry. <laughs> I bet. There were no fingerprints on the bookcase. It looked more or less like it had been thrown out of a moving car kind sure. of thing. Because it was just off the side of the road. Yeah. As they continued this, I mean, this was the only like tangible lead that they had. Right. Um, yes, it was a little odd that Joseph Bell waited like six hours to call it in. Yeah, but... that's a really good chunk of time. But it's still something tangible, and we know it's his, exactly. right? There's no way other about it that it's his book bag. Now, because they had this piece of evidence that's kind of, you know, a, a good chunk away from his family home, too. Mm-hmm. They're like, this is the area we need to concentrate on. Mm-hmm. So they continued searches day and night. They yeah. even set up lights so that. The night of, you know, the dark of the night wouldn't stop them. They were combing through that entire area. And also on some of those days, it rained. Mm. So that, you know, makes you want to hurry up and try and find something if there's anything to find. For sure. On Sunday, July 11th, across the street from where the book bag was. So this was area that it would have already been looked through. Mm-hmm. They found... His hat, his school books, his lunch bag, his raincoat, and even an apple that his mom had sent him with for lunch. They found all of that in an area that had already been searched? And it was all dry. So it was clearly placed there like the morning Uh, of July 11th. Yeah. And what's worth noting on that is that obviously it was someone from within all those checkpoints that didn't have to go in or out. Sure. Because they would have been seen. Right. So it was at the range of someone throwing it out of a window as well. Yeah. So it could have been anyone in the dark of the night. You know, if the search party is somewhere else, they could have just driven by and dropped all that exactly. stuff. But at this point, still no Graham. Uh-huh. No phone calls or anything. At this point, there is, um, like I said, Cub Scouts and volunteers. There's over 200 Army soldiers that were volunteering their time, too, to help comb through all these bushes. Um, There was a $5,000 reward put out by the government. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that's like the police reward, $5,000. And there was an additional $15,000 reward put out by the newspaper. Wow. Yeah, so already up to twenty, and I'm sure the parents would have been yeah willing to give up everything. Oh yeah, they would have given their whole hundred thousand. Yeah, a hundred percent. In Australia in 1960, there were no laws against kidnapping. Wow. Because it had never happened. Right. If it doesn't happen, crazy. Why would you need a law for it? Sure. The Lindbergh case had just happened in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and the U.S. did have kidnapping laws or convictions set for it where it was a federal offense mm-hmm. and the australian government um, at that point made it very known that they would be looking into changing that yeah they had laws against abduction but none against kidnapping where they could if someone was intending harm to someone 
and if there was any ransom asked for it. So there was malice behind it. So they would be looking to make it a federal offense. It wouldn't apply to Graham's case Mm -hmm. unless it would have been changed retroactively, which also would have been a first. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, like, what would the, like, definition difference be between abduction and kidnapping? Is kidnapping you're, like, looking for something... In, in return, I think for? so. Okay. Instead of just a kid up and going missing and yeah. no communication or contact. Maybe. From, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Just, a, yeah. They're Abduction just for... There was also another witness that said that on the morning of July 7th that Graham disappeared. He remembered he had to drive through the neighborhood that Graham would have walked through and he saw a blue Ford custom, a blue Ford custom line. Okay. A very specific type of vehicle. Yeah. It's a year, make, and model. And this person, he had driven through with his wife. And the police at first were like, well, how sure are you that it was this type of vehicle? Mm-hmm. Because obviously they don't want to just, you know, go looking for that type of car if they have no actual evidence that it was. Sure. And he was very sure. Yeah. He was actually a car enthusiast. So he's like, oh, I know 100%. And plus, the car was parked wrong. It was hanging out on the side of the road like it wasn't supposed to. So Mm. I actually had to drive around it. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing a man with an olive complexion, dark brown hair, walking out of it. Never seen him before myself. And I remember... The specific type of car because I I know cars. They and in order to check his knowledge, they the police drove around with him and were just spot checking him on his knowledge on different cars. Oh wow! So once they like okay, we believe you. We believe you now. Yeah. They actually put like magazines of cars in front of him to see if he could say what kind of cars uh-huh. they are. So his recollection is really good on this type sure. of car. It was a blue Ford Custom line, and. His wife, that was a passenger in the vehicle at the time that they had to drive around this parked car, said that she actually remembered that there's a bench kind of in front of the Thorns' house in that neighborhood mm-hmm. where if you sit there, you can see into that, see the houses. She remembers seeing this man sitting a couple mornings in a row with what looked like, <laughs> seems comical, like a big, huge newspaper hiding his face when people came by. Mm, mm-hmm. And she wasn't the only one. There's other other people in the, in the neighborhood that came forward and said they remember seeing a short, stocky man. Yeah. All of the complexion, dark brown hair, that was sitting in that bench and with mornings leading up to Graham's abduction sure. or kidnapping. Okay, so... On August 16th, so six weeks from the date that he initially disappeared. Oh, my goodness. There was a couple kids playing in Seaforth, and they uh, played in an empty lot as usual, as they did. And one of the, th- one of the kids saw a rug that was rolled up. Uh-huh. They didn't want to mess with it, but they ran home and told their moms. The mom said, we'll just wait for your dad to get home. When the dad got home, there's two different dads. When they got home, they went out there together. It was dark already. They took their flashlights. Uh-huh. And they carefully took off 
a bottom piece of it and saw a foot. Oh, my goodness. And they called the police. Yeah. So that was Graham. He was wrapped up in a rug. And I use the word rug loosely because I think it's open to different variations of what they call a rug, what we would call a rug. Um, Some people have called it like a shawl type thing or like a small blanket that someone would take like on a picnic Mm, kind of thing. So we'll we'll just call it rug because that's simpler. Yeah. um, The coroner reported that there was a scarf around Graham's neck. There was rope around his feet and wrists. He still had his school coat completely buttoned up. His handkerchiefs and his pockets were still in his pockets and folded. They were not used in any way. Mm-hmm. His little tie was still tied the same way that his mom tied it for him this mor- that morning. And he was at an advanced stage of decomposition. Oh, my god! So although he was found six weeks later, <sighs> the coroner determined that he was dead within 24 to 48 hours from when he first was last seen. Oh my gosh. Just sitting there in the hot Australian yeah. summer. July, oh August. Gosh. Yeah. yeah. He did have blunt force trauma to the back of his head. And there was also signs of asphyxia. And the coroner determined that it was one or the other or a combination of both that led to his death. He mm-hmm. couldn't decide specifically. Worth noting, and this is one of the first times that they used forensic science to the degree that they did in Australia, mm-hmm. because they literally had not much to go on. Right. So on his shoes, on the bottom of one of his shoes, they found fungi that the only way it would have been able to grow is if no stepping had been done with the shoe if it was the right moisture the right darkness because he was in the rug right so they determined that it had to be unmoved for at least three weeks uh-huh. before that fungi could grow to that degree that it sure grown. now the rug itself um was a wool rug it was i'm gonna butcher the name i think it's like paringa the brand so i can only imagine the way that they describe it is as prominent as a Pendleton wool blanket would be here. You know, it's just like, that's their brand. Sure. And it was a a blue and red checkered blanket. Okay. They they checked with the manufacturer. There were only 3,000 units that were made of that specific pattern. Right. And even though the police knew that they would be asking for a lot or they would get a lot of leads. They asked anyone that knew anyone that had one of these rugs to call in. Yeah. So at the risk of getting a shit ton of leads, they're like, we don't care. We'll, we'll follow down every single lead. It's the most specific that you're going to get it's with a, that detail yeah. to try to track somebody for sure. So again, with the forensic scientists on this, this was a novel idea for them. Mm-hmm. And what they did is they spread out the blanket or rug and they went meticulously inch by inch on this thing and picked out every fiber, mm-hmm. every hair, every seed, every needle from a tree. Yeah. And they picked everything out of this. There were animal hairs on the rug and on the back of 
Graham's coat. And there was foliage on the scarf on his coat and his pants. And there was also what was really very specific was pink mortar dust, Mm. which is very specific because Mm -hmm. in Australia and I guess even now and, and then it was getting phased out. Because okay. it was not a very good building material. Sure. So if a house had this, then it was going to narrow it down a lot. Yeah. Now the animal hairs, if anyone here owns a dog, you would know <laughs> that shit gets everywhere. Oh, yeah. Everywhere. And there was a veterinarian that 100% with 100% certainty said, this is from a Pekingese dog. Okay. So now we have the rug. Uh-huh. We have it's a Pekingese dog. They took the foliage over to a botanist that determined that there was two different cypress trees. That likelihood of them growing together in the wild was very rare. Mm-hmm. So for both of those tree types to be embedded in the rug and whatnot, it had to be something that was from a very specific landscape type yeah. of situation. Yeah. Okay. Now, going back to the car that the neighbor had seen on the day of. The Ford. So the cops, like I said, they literally, any lead that they had, they're like, we're going to the end of it. Make sure it's either it matters or we know that it doesn't matter. Right. Now, knowing that they had pretty good grasp on this was a blue Ford custom line that didn't belong. And the man that was walking out of that car matches the quote-unquote private investigator Mm -hmm. that had walked up to their home a couple weeks prior, we're going to follow up on this lead. Yep. Now, their Department of Motor Transportation, or our DMV here, um, I mean, for anyone, was not digitized back in 1960. (laughs) No, it was not. And there's stock footage of them going through what they're called the cards so the registration is just like you know what it looks like the library's dewey decimal system yes, yeah exactly <laughs> it's just like endless and endless amount of cards oh my goodness so they had to hand sort through all of these registration cards to look for blue ford custom lines they found about three thousand. wow and when i tell you they talk to every person they talk to every person. People were still not getting their PTO no, at this point in no, time. No, no. And you get overtime and you yeah, get overtime. Exactly. So one of the one of the owners of a Ford, a blue Ford custom line was Stephen Bradley. Now knowing that he lived kind of close to where those phone calls came in from. Mm, okay. So they followed, they checked in on him. And when they did ask him, when they did inquire about him owning this car, he had actually just moved out of his rental home. Mm -hmm. And he said that on that day that Graham disappeared, he was there with the movers because he was waiting for the movers to come to move the furniture out of his house. Mm -hmm. They asked the movers about that day and the mover said, yeah, we went into the house, we moved some stuff. And when we asked him about anything in the garage, he said, there's nothing in the garage for you guys to, to pick up. Okay. The car was there though. Mm. He said the car didn't move out of the garage that day whatsoever. Mm -hmm. 
So that was before they actually found his body and and knew all of these other things, like the rug, oh, the okay. foliage, the the animal hair and whatnot. Gotcha. Now, knowing all of these details, there was a very vigilant post worker that reached out to the police. Nice. That said, hey, I go by this house, or I delivered mail to this house, who at one point owner owns a blue Ford custom line mm-hmm. that has that type of dog (laughs) and that has two similar looking kind of trees out there like the ones you're describing yes mr mailman but the weird thing is is that they don't live there anymore Hmm. right because we know that he said he was moving right so he leads them to unknowingly stephen bradley's house so stephen bradley's house when the cops show up they are it's empty they no longer live there right so a little bit about Stephen Bradley. Okay. He was uh, he was born in Budapest, Hungary. Okay. Okay. And he moved to Australia in 1950. He remarried to a woman named Eva. And they had one kid. In 1955, Eva sadly died from a car accident. Mm. Which, now in hindsight... It was a little suspicious. Hmm. And he did get a lot of insurance money. Okay. In 1957, he was brought up on some fraud charges that didn't stick. In 1959, he met his, what would then be his current wife, Magdo. They married. They blended their family and their kids. Mm-hmm. And then also that... Li- Sorry, that was oh, me. I was like, what is That was me, my bad. And that same year, 1959, their house burned down. And that's when they moved to Sydney on the profit of the insurance money that they got from their very well-insured home. Mm, Sounds like somebody knows how to uh, swindle some payouts. So by 1960, their money was running low. They had three kids total. And in Hungary... Mr. Bradley, or Stephen, was a nurse. But when he came to Australia, those credentials didn't get... Uh, They didn't transfer. They didn't transfer. So he was left with doing odd end kind of jobs. Sure. And so that money, you know, they didn't have that kind of money anymore. And they have a big family. So 1960, when his money was starting to run low, is also when the lottery was won by Mr. Thorne. Right. And with that information, with the postman saying, hey, look at this guy, look at this house, because the house is empty, the cops were able to just willy-nilly go in there and check it out. Oh, okay. In the basement of the house, there was, lo and behold, pink mortar on the walls. Mm. On the outside of the house was the cypress trees. Yeah. And they did own a Pekingese dog. Wow. But the cops didn't know that they had actually, the whole family, had just boarded a ship because they were moving to London. Oh, shit. So they had, they were not in the country anymore. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So we come to find out that soon after the kidnapping and, you know, all of this was found out, um, they bought tickets to go to London. Wow. Um, 
Little is known about whether or not his wife Magdo knew what had happened or not. Uh huh. Um, or whether he said he could get a better job or whatnot. Sure. But what we do know is that not his wife Magdo, but Stephen wrote different letters, told different stories to the school teachers, to his employment, to his landlord why it is that they were leaving the country. Mm. He told one person is because he was going to have back surgery and he would be out of commission for a couple of months. He told another he told one school that they were just going to move to another part of Australia. Yeah. He told them they, they were all different stories. That's weird. And I don't think Magdo knew any of that. Okay. The ship docked in Sri Lanka midway through the voyage mm-hmm. to London. And Stephen quite literally jump ship he stayed in Sri Lanka and he just ran from his family he his family went on to London wow and because the cops knew this now that he was in Sri Lanka and he'd Uh gotten off there they did what is here in the U.S. known as a grand jury they present the evidence to a jury to see is there enough evidence to charge this person do you think we should charge them so in australia and i think a lot of other countries it's called prima facie okay it's the first step to see whether or not there's enough to charge right this was such a rush job but there was so much information that they had him yeah for sure the bikini's dog was actually still with a vet he was in charge he was in the care of a vet that was supposed to take care of the transportation of the dog from Australia to London. Uh-huh. And he actually reached out to saying, hey, I have this dog here <laughs> who I have no forwarding address for. Right. But he belongs to Stephen Bradley. Right. And <clears throat> the prima facie case, the court immediately and extraordinary was able to quickly approve an extradition order Mm -hmm. and so they had to take well during this prima facie when this is this is wild 21 witnesses came up for for this prima facie part um and they still had 40 more to go but the the judge was like no i'm good yeah we got it we've got enough well what they had to do is that they had to go to sri lanka and Ask him to allow Australia to extradite him sure. for this charge. Right. At this point, Sri Lanka had no treaty with Australia for extradition. Mm. So they were in the middle of their own, you know, political different climate. So right. there was no treaty with Australia on whether or not they could extradite someone. But the evidence was so heavy that when they had the evidence presented to the Sri Lankan authorities, Sri Lanka was like, yeah, take them. Yeah, we don't want him here. Absolutely. So they put him on the plane. The extradition was granted. And as soon as he touched ground in Australia, he sat down and he told everything. Oh, my goodness. He immediately confessed to everything. His version of everything. Yeah, let's hear it. So what he said happened is, yes, he's admittedly saying, I cased the joint. I found out of the lottery winnings. Mm-hmm. I've been going to that bench across the house and even following him to school and knowing that he gets picked up by Phyllis every morning for about three weeks. Wow. And he said that on the morning of July 7th, when he pulled up next to Graham, he told him that Phyllis had an emergency and couldn't pick him up that morning. But he didn't want to be late to school, right? right. So. Graham jumped in and 
from there, he said that he took him to his house, put him in the trunk of the car or the boot of the car. Yeah. And put a scarf around him with the intention of coming back later. But he got caught up with time and with the movers inside the house that as when he was next able to come and check on him, he had already passed away. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so sad. So he said he panicked and he took him down to the basement because we know that the basement was empty at this uh-huh. point. And that's where he put him in the rug and rolled him up Ugh. and put him in the boot of the car and then went and dumped him on the site. And then where did the blunt force trauma to the head come in? That's the thing. That's his version of what happened. Right. That it was just, not strangulation, but suffocation. Yeah. But, bro. Yeah. I mean, It could be that he dropped him on the cement floor in the basement. It could be that he knocked him around when he was in the trunk of the car. I, we don't know. Yeah. At least he's not saying he didn't do it. That's true. Yeah. Um, He's trying to make it look more of like an accident when... Clearly it's not. Clearly it it was very, very intentional. During the trial, the police even found an old roll of film while they were in the house. And they developed that film. Uh And they were able to prove that that rug was in other pictures when when the family was in the home. Gotcha. They also had found... They did find one one tassel of the rug from like the edge of the rug uh-huh in the basement crazy so it's just very small things yeah um the jury took all of 3 hours and 22 minutes yeah to convict him and he was sentenced to penal servitude for life good now because of this monumental new case that i mean literally started stranger danger in australia yeah. it uh there is now new harsher punishments for kidnapping cases and any lottery winners have the option to opt out of having their address and picture printed on the newspapers yeah or any i would medium. definitely opt to not have my information put out there like that and you know there's some states here we we have it all over the board here in the u.s where some you can stay anonymous Mm -hmm. and some you might not even have a choice, which I think is scary. That is very scary. I don't want my boss to know till I show up with champagne at her house. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, but no, I mean, in, in all seriousness, it is a security issue for sure. Case in point. Exactly. If someone knows your address, they can figure out, you know, so much more about you. I mean, your address alone gives away so much of your security away. Well, and just with all the technology that we have nowadays, it's, I mean, I guess regardless if your information gets posted or not, it's really not that hard to track somebody down once you have a, even a right. first and a last name. So yeah. I would 100% want to stay anonymous. Yep. The only people that would know that I won that amount of money was my friends and family because I'd go and pay their houses off. Oh dream yeah seriously but no i i don't want people coming out of the woodwork either like these people had and having to say no so many times it's gonna get to you it's gonna wear you down it's gonna be you know not only annoying but god your soul can only take so much no but for sure um so when you know wessie went to prison because of his 
previous credentials as being in medical practice, he became an orderly while he was in jail, in oh, prison. Okay. And in October of 1968, so a short eight years yeah. after his um, sentence started, he suffered from a coronary occlusion and passed away mm-hmm. while he was playing tennis, which is odd. That's weird. That's odd to me. Yeah. Tennis is a ritual sport. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, I mean, I don't know how Australian prisons work, but... Sure. If I'm going to prison, I want to play tennis. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, Where's something... that sign-up sheet? Yeah. Now I, I realized that I, I missed something, which was um, in October of 1960, both Frida and Basil were asked to look at a photo lineup which included Steven in it, and they put them in separate rooms so they wouldn't, oh. you know, influence each other's yeah, decision. Yeah. And they both, based on the interaction with this private investigator, uh-huh. they both chose Steven out of the lineup. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the case of, of Graham Thorne. Oh, that's um, so sad. And I mean, unfortunately, you know, some case has to be the first of its yeah. kind, you know, and that's that's so sad. I mean, and especially, you know, you think about kidnappings and stuff that it, it's kind of wild that it would have taken all the way until the 60s yeah, for there to be. Well, at least in Australia, because here in the U.S., we... The U.S. is a different breed. Yeah. We, we had kidnappings before for ransom, and even... To this day, we still have some. I'm sure, and I'm sure Australia does too. But talk about learning from your mistakes, though. Yeah, for sure. And getting better from them. Yeah. And learning from them because, you know, these laws where you don't have to give your address out if you win something. Right. It's great. It's a great rule of thumb. Well, and kudos to the police department and everything for them being so relentlessly thorough with. With everything, you know, and using yeah. any and every resource that they everything. that they had. It's it's a shame that our just our whole system is so overwhelmed with mm-hmm. everything nowadays that it sadly to be able to put that amount of time and money and bodies it's into hard. one case is really, really mm-hmm. hard. And it reminds me of um like Kyron Horman's case here. Yeah. That's unfortunately our infamous kidnapping case that mm-hmm. we, we'll, you know, that we not grew up with, but saw firsthand. Yeah. And the amount of manpower that goes into something like that is big. It's huge. Could it always be bigger? You ask the parents, I'm sure it's a yes. Yeah, for sure. But. You know, it's just one of those things that it brings everyone good and bad out of the woodwork. Yeah. Oh, another thing I forgot is that as they were looking for him, there were people, just opportunists, scam artists that were calling the thorns, pretending to be the kidnapper. Oh. And saying they would take less. Right. That they would take less money. Just go and drop off $5,000 in the brown sack at, you know, this garbage. Shame on those people. And, you know, it's... And good on the good side of that, I guess it was good that the police had the forethought. They actually placed a police or a detective 
in the house to stay with them 24 seven to yield those calls yeah, to make sure that, you know, anything that came in, they could either try and trace or they can try and get some more information out of. So that was, you know, good or bad type of things that it was good that they, I mean, you said it, they knocked it out of the park. Yeah, they really did. They left no stone unturned on this one. So, yeah. It's unfortunate that it didn't have a, a better no ending. I know. But that's a that's a great case. That's those stories are always oh really hard to hear, you know, especially young kids and stuff like that. But wow, that's I'm I have not ever heard of that story. Listen, stick a tile in your kid's backpack. <laughs> yeah. Slip an air tracker in there. Uh-huh. In a shoe. In oh my gosh, something. yeah. Yeah. Have you seen that? So, I mean, I'm not a parent, but as soon as I have kids, the sole of the shoe, you can cut a little slit in there and pop a little air tracker in there. Mm-hmm. Just in case. You lose them okay. at the mall? Yeah. You lose them at the grocery store? Exactly. Listen. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do that. Do that. Yes. Or put a bell on them. I don't care. Right. A little and, and I'm not saying this is, of course, any of the mother's fault. Of course not. No. Um, but it's it's just wild and. Well, and it's sad that you even have to like as someone wanting to be a parent that you even like. Yeah, I'm not honestly, even a parent. Yet, and I'm thinking about have that. to think about that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's really fucked up. I mean, that we uh, have developed these new forms of technology. To be able to track our children in case they're kidnapped. Yep. It's fucked up. Well, that's the case of Graham Thorne. Oh, that was a great one. Well, yeah. that, yeah. It, you know, we cover so many in the U.S. It's uh, refreshing, I guess you could say, to mm-hmm. hear something from from somewhere else. And yeah, how their, how their laws have developed over mm-hmm. the years. Even if it's something that's been so common for us for so long, you know... There's always the first of its kind somewhere else, so... For sure. And be vigilant. Story. Yes. Be a ranger, like the guy who knew what the hell he was talking exactly. about the cars. Exactly, yes. He's like, I know the car. Those are the stranger rangers we need yes. out patrolling every day. And the little looky-loos that are like, yep, I've seen him in the bench mm-hmm. four weeks in a row. With that you newspaper know? in front of his face. I know. Yeah. It's so wild. Crazy. All right. Well, that's the case thank you for listening always uh, as always please check us out on patreon and if you haven't already given us a review on wherever it is that you listen to our podcast we'd really appreciate it and don't be a stranger we'll see you next week bye bye